It is my pleasure to have Joram Bauman join us today. He's going to be talking about his latest book, actually a second edition of the cartoon introduction to climate change. The aspects of this that are really interesting on top of just the book itself being something that's accessible to a larger audience is that Joram is an economist, an academic economist, but also a comedian. So welcome, Joram. Thank you so much. I would love to start off by just asking you how this transition, you have a very interesting <laughs> dynamic career path. So would you, would you mind just sharing some of that with us? Uh, sure. So I uh, actually got interested in environmental economics as an undergraduate at Reed College, ended up working on some things relating to pollution pricing and carbon taxes and things like that. Uh, and then I went to graduate school. And while I was in graduate school, I wrote a parody of an economics textbook just to kind of blow off steam. Uh, and one thing led to another and I started doing comedy as a hobby. And then uh, after I finished my PhD, two things happened. Uh, my academic career did not go quite as well as I had hoped. Uh, and my comedy career went better than expected. I had a YouTube video with a million hits and people started emailing me and asking me if I could if they could hire me to do economics comedy. And so over the course of the next few years, comedy has become my, my full-time business. So I make a living as the world's first and only stand-up economist. I am an economist as well as you know. And the thing that I have to ask you is, is the popularity of an economist as being a comedian because people like to make fun of economists or because the perspective of economics actually allows us to see a, a sense of humor or see life as being a little bit more humorous than may appear on the surface, or maybe a combination of both. Yeah. I mean, I think you can do comedy about, you can do comedy about anything where there are kind of stereotypes to play with. And as you suggest, there are definitely stereotypes about economists, you know, being hyper-rational and very money focused. And so I have a whole bunch of, uh, you know, you might be an economist if jokes, like you might be an economist if you don't read human interest stories because they don't interest you. Uh, you might be an economist if you adamantly refuse to sell your children because you think they'll be worth more later. So that the, the comedy that I do, I think, is partly related to that. And partly, I think it's because there are a lot of folks out there in the world who know or think that economics is important, but also they feel like it's kind of inaccessible. And so someone who can present economics and make them laugh instead of making them fall asleep mm -hmm. potentially seems like an attractive value proposition. Well, it's definitely true. <laughs> so where do you find in terms of just basic economic literacy? And I'm asking this also because your book title is Introduction to. Is uh, economic literacy lacking in your opinion in, in general? And does humor actually help enhance people's understanding of how economics fits into their daily decision making? Well, I mean, I think humor is a good way to make a subject accessible. And that's true for a subject like economics, which again, many people kind of have this idea that it's interest, that, that it's important, but not necessarily interesting. And I think that's probably true with climate change also, right? Like people are scared of it. They kind of want to know more, but they're worried about it. And it's hard to pick up, you know, a 400 page kind of doom and gloom book, even if that's warranted. And so the cartoon book is sort of a, both the economics cartoon books and the cartoon, the, the second edition of the cartoon introduction to climate change are more, they're accessible books. I mean, I like to think of them as books that somebody who cares about climate change, uh, a young person who cares about climate change could read and then give to their, you know, kind of their stereotypical older relative who's a climate skeptic. And that person would pick up the book and, and give a reasonable consideration you know, cartoon books are attractive in that way and that they're easy to pick up and, and they're a quick read. And, um, and I think comedy is kind of like that, too, where 
it's a it, it's an accessible entry point for these topics that can sometimes be that can sometimes be daunting, right? And this is why when it comes to economics, at least, you know, people always think that economics is about money, and I'm going to give them advice about where to invest their money and stuff like that. And you know, you and I both do environmental economics, which is very far away from that. So part of the part of the point of the economics books is to show audiences like the true scope and what I think of as the true beauty in in economics and try to do that with other subjects as well. My co-author Grady and I also have a cartoon book about calculus, which is also kind of the same where people think that it's this daunting, scary topic, but um, there's a bunch of neat ideas behind it. Uh, and then the climate change book, there's, you know, there's part about climate science and then some parts about climate policy including carbon pricing, which is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, and I think it's all presented in a way that's both factually accurate and, and accessible to, you know, to the general audience. Well, it's definitely something that we need. We need as much stakeholder engagement as we can on this issue, because in spite of the fact that so much information being out there, there is not a consistency in terms of action across the United States in terms of the general public. So going to that, I'm going to ask you a couple great points that you brought up. One is with regard to carbon pricing. Can you explain a little bit about that? That's also something that's very controversial to many people, challenging to many people. The first thing to think of is how they're going to be able to maintain their current consumption levels. Why should they have to pay the price of the past generations? How do you get around something like that? Yeah. So um, a, a great question. And it's kind of one that I've been banging my head against both as a, an academic and an activist over, over the past many years. I worked on a carbon tax ballot measure in Washington state. Uh, the first ever one that was on the ballot, this was in 2016. I now live in Utah and I'm working on clean air and climate ballot measure effort here in Utah called clean the darn air, as well as working on things related to carbon pricing in States like Arizona, South Dakota, Nebraska, New York, New Jersey, some of which are very red states. So I think that, you know, the 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 way that a, I look at this as an economist is that really the, the, the simplest way to, to start is to say that the that economists tend to think that the way to get less pollution is to make polluting expensive. Right. So right now it's free to pollute, uh, whether we're talking about local air pollution or global air pollution in terms of carbon emissions. And uh, as a result, we end up with, with too much pollution. It's the same way that, you know, um, in, in other examples of sort of, of common property resources, where if you have a, a lake with a bunch of fish in it and everybody can access the lake, then you're going to get overfishing. And in the same way, everybody can dump their emissions into the atmosphere. And so you're going to get too much pollution. And so the, the, you know, we, the formal way that economists talk about this is with regards to externalities and there's market failures. So Adam Smith's invisible hand doesn't work. And we use we can we can use the idea of putting a price on pollution as a surrogate for a missing market signal. Right. There's market signals. You know, the cost of labor tells you that you should economize in your use of labor, the cost of materials and things you buy send you a signal that you should be economizing your use of those resources. And there's no signal like that for for pollution to provide an incentive for for everybody, individuals, households, businesses, utilities to reduce their emissions. And so the point of carbon pricing is to provide that missing signal. By making polluting expensive, we provide incentives for, for people and businesses to pollute less. And, and then the, 
I mean, the interesting twist on this that really that got me interested in economics in the first place was the idea that we can pair that sort of stick with a carrot in that when we put a price on pollution, when we have something like a carbon tax, we have we generate a pile of revenue. Right. And government can do all sorts of things with that revenue. And, you know, everyone has their own ideas about what the government could do with a pile of revenue. But the idea that I really work on and focus on is that we could use most or all of that revenue to reduce or eliminate existing taxes. So, for example, the campaign that I'm working on here in Utah, the Clean the Darn Air campaign, Utah is one of a handful of states that still has a sales tax on grocery store food. And so the idea that we're working on, and Utah is a very conservative state, but the idea that we're working on is, hey, let's have a carbon tax, a tax on fossil fuels, and let's use the revenue from that to fund some air quality programs and some uh, help help out uh, folks in rural economies and things like that in Utah. But also let's use it to eliminate the state sales tax on grocery store food. Right. So we're going to kind of the tagline of our campaign is we're going to tax pollution instead of potatoes and put the money that's left over into cleaning the darn air. So it's not just a stick. It's not just like, you know, everything's going to cost more. It's that some things are going to cost more. And in the case of grocery store food, some things are going to cost less. And I think that's I think that's an attractive proposition for folks across the political spectrum. So I just want to ask a follow up there. I mean, if we as you and I both know, I mean, depending upon how much somebody needs a particular product, those people that have to have it and that product is now being given a carbon tax. So it's actually become more expensive for them. They're going to be subsidizing the sales tax in that kind of situation because they're going to have to pay the carbon tax. And then they will not have to pay the the sales tax on their food, but others that may be able to substitute away from products that don't have as much carbon intensity, perhaps maybe they have their own solar panels, they may then be getting the benefit of the fact that they could afford solar panels, but now they don't have to pay the sales tax because the person who couldn't afford them is the one that's bearing the cost of the tax. Is that an issue here? Well, I think it's a, I mean, prices fluctuate all the time. We've certainly seen that with, you know, with gas prices going from $2 a gallon to $5 a gallon and, you know, bouncing around. So this is a, it's, it's a fairly modest carbon price that we're looking at here. And the sales tax on groceries is also, you know, fairly modest. It's the sort of thing that on, on net is for most households is going to be a hundred or a couple hundred dollars plus or minus over the course of, of a year. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a reasonable, I think that's reasonable in terms of, of doing our part in the state of Utah to improve local air quality and also to, to help save the world. Right. So change is always hard. It's, you know, it would be really nice to find policies that magically sort of made everybody better off without making anybody worse off. I mean, that's sort of the Holy grail in, in economics, what we call Pareto improvements, but you know, real life policies often fall short of that, sometimes substantially. And I think this particular idea, you know, come, comes pretty close. Well, thank you for that. I mean, the, the, the point I'm just trying to bring up for, for people is that there is this issue that, unfortunately, to the extent that we think of renewable fuels or any kind of green technologies as being something that should be kept only and reserved only for those that can afford it, the people who are on the bottom end of the spectrum will end up paying a larger price both for their inability to afford clean technologies, but also because they have 
a need, a basic need to use them that can't be substituted away with anything else. That disproportionate nature is probably one of the biggest issues related to maybe politically <laughs> why, why uh, we're seeing such a slow movement on even a national level, because at the end of the day, you're asking politicians to step in and drive a conscience for the American people when they themselves are dependent upon American people's popularity for them to be able to remain elected, right? So th- uh, this, this is going to be a simple question I, I'm going to ask you with regard to this, because I've, I've thought about this quite a bit myself. In a way, would you say that if we as a profession in terms of economics had been more conscience-driven, we wouldn't have these types of externalities occurring? So in other words, if we were more true to our philosophical, moral philosophical roots, rather than having embraced the Friedman philosophy with relate, related to business, would we be in a different state today in terms of climate change? Wow, there's a lot in that question. I guess I'm inclined to say, to say no. I, th- I think the underlying challenge is that human beings are not as, as nice as we would like them to be, right? I think they're better than we have any right to expect them to be. Things could certainly be a lot worse in terms of human behavior compared to like in terms of actual human behavior compared to the the stereotypical sort of self-interested homo economicus sort of model. I think people tend like people in the real world tend to be much, much nicer than that. Right. And this, this is what I often call the, the, the optimism that comes with low expectations, right? If you expect people to be very self-interested in that, sort of basic economics model kind of way, it turns out that people in the real world are much better than that, but they're not, you know, as nice as we might like them to be. But I don't think that that, I don't put the blame for that kind of on economists or Milton Friedman or any of that sort of stuff. I just kind of write that down in in terms of human nature. And, you know, to return to your your earlier comment about about low-income households and, and people not being able to substitute away from fossil fuels, there certainly are challenges on that front, but it's also true that people have a hard time substituting away from grocery store food. And so, you know, and we've done an analysis of this effort that we're working on in, uh, in Utah, the clean the darn air campaign. And, um, and the numbers kind of pencil out, like they show that even if you're not really able to, to substitute away easily, it still kind of pencils out, especially for low income households. Part of our policy also includes a, an expansion of the earned income tax credit that benefits low income working families. So I think those ideas and those concerns are definitely valid. I think they're important reasons to to pay close attention to what the policy actually is. But I also think there are very relevant policy tools and and approaches that can address those concerns. That's a perfect segue for us to talk more about what you wanted to highlight in your your most recent edition of the Introduction to Climate Change, right? So would you mind maybe highlighting a few aspects there and, and, and who your target audience is and what you're hoping people will take away from it? What will be the the biggest contributions that this book could have in terms of engaging people on this issue that we all need to be part of in terms of the solution. So the the book is based on the latest scientific report. The every six or seven years, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, this big international body, produces a, a, a giant three volume set of of books called assessment reports about climate change. The first edition of the cartoon book came out after the fifth assessment report, AR5, it was called. And now the revised edition of the cartoon book 
is based on, and it came out after the release last year of the sixth assessment report, AR6. And uh, I guess you can think of them as cartoon versions of the IPCC assessment reports, right? You take these multi-thousand page volumes and condense it down to a 200 page cartoon book with some pretty good jokes in it. And so there's a part on climate science, there's a part on impacts, and there's a part on on responses like what what's the what does the science say what's going to happen if you know if we don't if we don't take action and then what kind of actions can we plausibly take uh, and that includes carbon pricing but it also includes you know other ideas and you know the idea of electrifying everything electric vehicles instead of internal combustion engines electric you know heat pumps instead of like burning natural gas for home heating and factories and things like that so the the I think that the, the target lines for the book, many people, especially in the United States, think that cartoon books are, quote unquote, just for kids. That's not really the way that I see it. Right. When you get on an airplane, if you get on an airplane and you look at the safety card, the safety card is written in cartoon form. And that's not because it's just for kids. It's because it's a very good way to present a lot of information in a concise, accessible manner. And that's kind of the way that I think about the cartoon book. And the target audience is kind of a mix of folks who care about climate change. So I can imagine like a, a young person who is interested in learning more about climate change, picking up this book and finding an, an easy, accessible introduction to the relevant issues, but then having that young person also potentially able to give the book, you know, to their stereotypical older relative who is a climate skeptic in a, in a way where that older relative could be motivated to pick up the book and kind of leaf through it and give it some thought. And, you know, if you look at the structure of, of the book, it actually goes through intentionally, it goes through a whole bunch of the first few chapters are about things like, there's a history of planet Earth that talks about the Milankovitch cycles, which you know led to the ice ages and how the ice ages, you know, of course, were not caused by human activity and what's different this time. And so there's a lot in the book that kind of builds up before we get to the mm, kind of the politically what you consider the politically charged issue of like, well, are humans uh, mostly responsible for increasing global temperatures and what's the evidence for that? And so I think that the, the book was intentionally written in a way to be accessible for folks kind of across the political spectrum and with different levels of knowledge about climate change. Um, I think one of the other challenges that we face, the usual line from like the advertising industry or whatever, is that you have to talk about your products like seven times before people even begin to hear about it. Well, I think that's probably true with climate change as well. Like, you know, those of us who have been working on this issue for multiple decades now, I kind of wish that the general public got more of the basics, but the fact of the matter is that it's hard to, it's hard to break through. And we're still at a point where a lot of folks could use some help with the basics. And so the book is an entry point for those basics in an accessible way. And then if you want to go a little bit deeper into, you know, sea level rise or, you know, Topics other than fossil fuels, methane, for example, then there, then there's some leads in, uh, in the book for those things as well. You bring up an excellent point. As a mother with a 20-year-old son who is really into Spider-Man comics, he makes a point to me regularly as he invests more and more money into these books about how they are very much focused on adults and that the 
the, the representations, the pictorial representations are actually just another form of communication. And, and they're also very artistic. And to the point that you and I both have had in the classroom with this idea of multi-channel uh, learners, I think a cartoon book in many ways provides both the visual as well as the written material so that people can get the point that you're trying to convey. So I, I'm in agreement with you there in terms of accessibility as well as not making it seem too challenging which sometimes just seeing a plain written page related to all the adverse consequences that are coming our way may be very hard for a lot of people to handle. So could I ask just uh, from some aspects with regard to feedback in terms of people's perceptions of the book and, and how it's maybe helped them facilitate more activism if they're looking to do so? Could, could you perhaps provide that? Because I'm, I'm pretty sure there are a lot of people that will listen to this, that will think about how they could potentially use this book with what audience, what age group, and how does it spur climate action? Yeah. So uh, first of all, I have to give props to my co-author, who's also the illustrator, Grady Klein, because a lot of the magic in the book, it comes from, from his pen. There's, a, there's a, a great panel in the book where he Hard to describe on, on air, but he uses, uh, he describes them. So the Milankovitch cycles were related to, to the ice ages and changes in the Earth's orbit around the sun. And one of those changes is about the tilt of the Earth's orbit. And he has these, this really great set of drawings of, with this fellow in his in tighty whities who's kind of orbiting, orbiting the sun. And, and it's just a much, it's really fun. Like it's really fun to dive into the into the book through drawings like that. So I give Grady a, a tremendous amount of credit, and I think that accessibility is also part of what can contribute to the activism, right? I mean, as I understand it, at least the you know the the, the psychology literature basically says that it's difficult to motivate people with sort of doom and gloom, and uh, saying, well, you know, the the world's going to end if we don't do X Y Z, and uh, and the book takes a kind of naturally a, a little bit more of a optimistic, lighthearted, you know, cartoonish sort of approach, if you will. And, you know, if you're looking to do activism, then I think the book provides some good grounding in terms of what does the climate science actually say and what can we accomplish with different types of policy tools? And, you know, that background knowledge is incredibly important if you're trying to make the world a better place. And then I think it's also the sort of book that people will actually read, you know, and instead of just putting on the table and, and forgetting. And so if you're trying to motivate people to get engaged on this topic, then, then I, I think it's a fine book for that also. Uh, if there's anybody out there who's actually involved in activism and is interested in, uh, in, in, you know, getting some multiple copies at a discounted rate for activism purposes, then please reach out to me and let me know. And I'll try to help you with that. We certainly use them uh, in the campaigns that I work on. You know, if you make a donation of a hundred dollars or whatever, then we can provide a copy of the, of the book. So I think those, those are the sorts of ways that I think about the book being helpful for activism. Well, I appreciate that. I'm just going to point out that if anyone would like to get to in, in touch with Yoram and wants to ask any questions specific to the book, please feel free to send an email to sustainablepracticesltd.org and we will get you in touch with him. So just to make sure that, that no one's bombarding you with a lot of emails or looking for your email address, that will probably be the best way to, to ensure that communication just invited happens. So thank you, Yoram. With regard to that in mind, can we ask just a couple more questions with regard to what your next steps are you're also, as you mentioned very early on, a comedian, and this is tied to your, your comedy as well. 
Could you tell us if you have any venues coming up in terms of tours or any activities in that regard? Yeah. So I'm, I'm kind of picking the, the pieces of my economics comedy business off the ground after, after COVID and the pandemic and things like that. So I have started doing a little more in terms of going out on comedy tour. I'm actually doing some tours in states where I'm also trying to get folks interested in some state level carbon pricing related opportunities, uh, including some sort of non-traditional states like Nebraska and South Dakota. So I'm, I'm hoping to visit folks in those states and sort of talk about the cartoon book and talk about the carbon pricing work that I do and talk about potential state level ideas, including an idea I've been working on called a climate action tax cut, which as the name suggests, might be perhaps an accessible way to introduce climate action in states like South Dakota or Nebraska. And then I'm hoping to do, um, let's see, where else am I Uh, hoping to be on the East Coast, maybe also in Massachusetts at some point, I think later in 2022, and then also in 2023 and beyond. And it's, it's kind of a challenge because I I do want to, to try to pick my comedy business back up and spread the joy of economics comedy to the world. Uh, And I want to talk to folks about, you know, climate action and the cartoon books and things like this. But I'm also, you know, I'm trying to balance that with my personal carbon footprint and spending time with my family at home here in Salt Lake City. So it's it's a it's a balancing act that I'm happy to be able to engage in again now that it seems like we're kind of finding our way into this post-pandemic world. Definitely. And unfortunately, the pandemic only created or exacerbated underlying issues related to certain types of consumption that has uh, enhanced the human footprint on this planet. So definitely, I think there's a lot of of area for you to add uh, in terms of people's just understanding of these basic elements. And I'm so happy that you've written this book and that this is a second issue. So it means that it's already been out there and circulating and hopefully this one will circulate even further. And there is a lot more interest, positive interest in, in, in regard to being a change, especially amongst college students. I think they're maybe because they're thinking about their own futures, maybe because they're growing up in a world where there's so much uncertainty about the future, uh, maybe because they're finally realizing just like economics or itself, this is just a pure social construction and we can reconstruct things to be different and hopefully even better. So I just really want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, Yoram, and I, I look forward to seeing you again. I've had the opportunity to see you do your routine and engage students and academic audiences alike with regard to aspects of economics and how it it actually can be a learning tool from a comedian perspective or comedic perspective. So thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you, Madhavi. It was really great to connect with you again.